so here's one of the big ones among the more famous of episodes when it comes to TOS and for good reason I have to admit this one definitely makes my own quality list the VHS list whatever you want to call it that but uh, it, it's kept a little bit lower than it would otherwise be by a couple of flaws which I'll cover later this is actually put together by uh, oh god hopefully I can rebound Henry Carrie Wilbur I mean it doesn't matter because they then never wrote anything for Star Trek again kind of being a trend. Mark Daniels directed this one, though. And if the dialogue sounds familiar, it's because this episode got multiple and significant rewrites by, you guessed it, Mr. Coon. That's just kind of a trend. And trust me, it's going to keep being a trend. I'm telling you, I feel bad for that guy. One of the things I find funny here is if you pull up the some quotes about this episode, several people are like, mm, I don't really remember this episode. I don't remember a lot of the episode. That was the writer. If you look at the director, he said, there's not much I remember about the episode. <laughs> it's just... No, apparently this wasn't a very memorable episode, which I find interesting since... Well, honestly, I have a theory that if it wasn't for Star Trek II, this episode wouldn't be as memorable. To be honest, I disagree with that on a relative of quality, but there's no denying that Star Trek II solidified this sucker. There's a reason this was the episode that was chosen to get a sequel, after all when uh, they were sitting down and working through all that, uh, all the wonderful stuff there. We, of course, also have Ricardo Montalban. I really hope I'm pronouncing that right. I looked it up. I looked up several interviews of the man in order to help at that. And every time, every time I say it, I stutter just a little bit over, like Montalban. I hope I'm saying that right. And, of course, we have uh, Madeline Rue, who plays uh, MacGyver's. Funnily enough, she actually played... Montalban's, char Montalban's character's wife in Bonanza. No, really. Sadly, she actually was diagnosed with MS in 1977, and as a consequence, that's why she is not present in Star Trek II, even though originally she was designed to be there. So, Kuhn put this stalker together. We, I, I could do a lot of discussion about stuff. Oh, by the way, uh, Madeline Rue, I, I forgot to mention this. She's obviously a very prolific actress, but she was also in... Mission Impossible. Just keep connecting those two. <clears throat> we have a ship from the 90s. Wait, hold up, hold up. We have a spaceship that was launched in the 90s. This is one of those wonderful and interesting problems with dating your work, because there's only so much you can do to make this stuff work, and, well, eventually you're going to reach that point. And you can't really accurately predict scientific progress. It just doesn't work that way, and we've historically been terrible at it. Uh, don't mistake me, the 90s probably sound very distant. For example, if right now I said, in 2050, we will launch our first spaceship, that doesn't sound all that out of bounds, does it? But you can see the problems here, since, you know, the 90s were 30 years ago. We still don't have spaceships. Anywho, <laughs> I just find this whole thing funny. It's, pro it's another byproduct, not just of science fiction in general, but of franchising. Remember, nobody really planned or even expected Star Trek to do anything more than the one season. It was nothing short of a small miracle that it got renewed for a second season, and even that's only really because of Paramount. So, this, this, was, this was kind of a thing, you know? Nobody was planning for Star Trek to still be a thing in the 90s. Anyways. So, Kuhn, I love the dialogue here. Um, 
We have uh, the historical expert. She's been painting all this stuff because, of course, she has. She super is into that. It's good visual exposition. It's a little bit silly in that kind of fictional, you know, you have a character trait which you're all about because that's how obsessions work. But ignoring that, it is good visual exposition to get across the idea very quick and very early that she romanticizes the past. It's actually one of the big themes of the work. Then, well, we have a question. Why all the expense and effort of putting these guys in this ship and launching it? What's interesting is if you pay attention, the episode does not answer that question. Now, we can assume, and quite a few different other works, like the books, the novelizations, and I think even some of the comics, have tried to explain and tie this one up. The, the thing that is implied in the episode is that they were not sent out as a prison ship. You know, they were sent out on their own volition. They got into the ship, put themselves in stasis, and said, okay, we're, we're out. Peace. And that's about as far as that went. We will actually learn just a little bit more about the specifics of this in canon when this comes up in Enterprise. But that'll be a while from now. That'll be next year at this point. This is also another first... This is our first mention of two wars in uh, in Federation history, both of which will come up many times in the future. The Eugenics Wars and World War III. A funny little f anecdote, actually. In this episode, they're mentioned as the same war. It would be future episodes and future works that would divide the two into the Eugenics Wars and then World War III. But th this is the first mention of both, and this is now that being entered into... Federation culture and Star Trek history. Now you might think, why is that important? Well, the wars themselves aren't super important, but the significance of their impact on in-universe history is. This is establishing that Earth was doing not great in the 60s, started doing worse in the 90s, had horrific things happen, turned it around, and turned into the ideal that the Federation would eventually be. In short, Humanity as, a, as, a, as an aggregate conscience, consciousness was going through hell and came out of it with the best of themselves. I've talked about that concept many times, but it's usually a character-specific thing. One individual, you go through hell, right? And what happens? Well, broadly speaking, you come out of it with the worst of yourself and you, you become a more horrible person, or you come out of it with the best of yourself and rise to that occasion. Thus, we see this idea and this theme, which is in many ways a core idea of the optimism, that reconstructive, or excuse me, constructive nature of science fiction, that Star Trek has always been intended to be, and something that remains true through all of modern Trek. I don't know if it applies to new Trek, see the previous discussion for that, but again, still haven't watched any of that stuff. So, that's awesome. Um... I love this bit where they actually specifically say space travel required uh, the stasis tubes until 2018 when it no longer was necessary to use them. Yeah, I remember a couple of years ago when I started zipping around without having to... <laughs> that sounds even more in the future back then, doesn't it? Think about that. From the 60s to 2018. Uh, let's, so that's one, that's 50 years. So yeah, imagine for not right now I said in 2070 we would have spaceships that don't need stasis. That's, that's the equivalent. Anyways, I also want to mention one other thing. This is another uh, setting establishment point. History that was lost to time. Information that's not in the history books, that kind of thing. 
It's always a fascinating concept, isn't it? Because so much of real life history has been lost, and so much of what we have is us kind of guessworking based on the random stuff we're able to find and our dating specific items and trying to figure out what was where and just... We we have 17 jigsaw pieces of a 2,000 jigsaw puzzle, and we're trying to figure it out, right? The thing is, the more modern you get, the less likely that gets because of just the nature of technology and information reproduction. But at the same time, let me ask you this. Let's say everything goes to hell in, oh, I don't know, 2020. <laughs> no, hear me. Mo memeing aside. Let's say we have this horrible apocalyptic event. Now, if this was a video game, every single one of you would keep detailed notes and or audio logs about everything that's happening as it's happening. Thus, we'd have a historical record of what happened. But in, in something closer approaching reality land, how many of you would actually keep a log or a record of what's happening as it's happening? Oh, there's people who would try to keep track, but there's a not unreasonable chance that the people who would normally keep track either aren't, or, you know, they're otherwise occupied, or they're dead. And the people who are left are just trying to survive. How much of history can endure and survive that? How, how many records are lost in the devastation that causes the loss of infrastructure that otherwise the apocalypse would bring? The idea of a technological dark age is a fascinating one that is in a lot of science fiction. It's in my setting, even. After the War of Annihilation, uh, lots of records and information were lost, along with the very location of planet Earth, for goodness sakes. So, you can kind of see the idea there and the, the appeal of it as a concept. So, you know, there they are. Oh, help, help. We find out a couple of things. First of all, that Ricardo Montalban is just really hot. Like, holy crap, he is so sexy. Actually, all joking aside, I always think he looks just a little bit weird in this episode. In Wrath of Khan? Yeah, no, I wish I looked that good. He, the, the white hair, the graying hair suits him wonderfully, and he's got an incredible ch chiseled jaw and his exposed peck. He looks awesome. I wish I looked that good. No joke. He looks weird here. <laughs> but what I find interesting is that Miss MacGyver's is just like, ah. And she even hesitates. She's so enamored with him that she actually stalls and almost causes an issue. Kirk later reprimands her over this, which makes me wonder... Does he do that for all the men who have constantly been going goo-goo eyes at the women over the course of the series? Because that's already happened at least three times that I'm aware of. And will happen in the future. Anywho. <clears throat> so, they're superhuman. We learn about them. Uh, you know... <laughs> McCoy is wonderfully flat. This is one of the reasons I praise the dialogue of this episode will be most effective if you go after the artery right up here. I, I forget the exact wording. And Khan's just like, okay, no, I can respect that. And that's another recurrent theme, respect. Now, I don't know how many of you are study, studi students or hobbyists of history, but how many of you can pick a conquering individual from historical past and, well, you romanticize them? I'm going to go ahead and raise my hand on that one. I am guilty of this, too. I actually personally don't think there's anything wrong with romanticization as long as it's got that big asterisk attached of, by the way, this this person did some horrible things, and this was a horrible time. Like, yeah, as long as that reality is still there, right? As long as you're not actually willfully blinding yourself to reality. Sure. 
But I bring that up because that romanticization of the past, in this case of the 90s, is a huge theme of this episode. Obviously, MacGyver's is the most obvious one, but most of the crew venerate Khan. The, the greatest of the tyrants of his era, no massacres, no wars that were not defensive. You know, they, they, they praise the man, which would work a lot better if not for one huge flaw. And let's just get it out of the way. The relationship, if you can call it that, between MacGyver's and Khan is toxic as crap. Oh my god, this is so uncomfortable and unpleasant to look at. I didn't like looking at this in the 90s. When I when I was really getting into TOS, looking at it now, it's just whoa, 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 whoa. You um, no, 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 no. Let's let's take that. It's, I have actually seen um, what do, what do you call them? The I can't remember what they're called. The 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 videos you're supposed to watch at corporations about how not to harass women in the office space that basically play out like this, and that's before the point where he physically abuses her. What the crap? Who thought this was a good idea? Now, here's the thing. I, I want to talk this out because I feel like there's an actual topic here. On the one hand, it makes absolutely perfect sense. Hear me out for a second. Khan is a very dominating personality. Nothing wrong with that per se, within reason. So when he first interacts with MacGyvers, he just kind of completely takes control of the conversation and moves it in the manner that he wants to, trying to gauge both her attention and to show that he reciprocates it. There's nothing wrong with that, necessarily. But that is basically the line right there, that first scene. And the problem is Khan then goes over it immediately and never stops going further past that line. That's where we run into issues. There's, uh, sane, safe, consensual. I, I bash those words constantly because they are such a hallmark of how that th that type of thing should be done. Whether it is the female or the male or whatever, if one of the people wants to be that kind of a dominating personality and the other person's into that, safe, sane, consensual, no problems. I'm not even talking about, like, dominatrix thing. I'm not talking about, you know, latex or actual... I actually don't know what that's called. That's more of a sex thing. I'm talking about just in terms of personality and how a relationship is structured. Here's the catch. The next thing that happens is, well, actually, the next thing that happens is he goes to the dinner and he pretty much just straight up forces a kiss on her, but she's down with that, so, eh, okay, you know what? I'm, I'm willing to let that one slide, too. So I take it back. He doesn't go over the line immediately. But then he goes back to his room, lying about being fatigued, and then she comes by. And that's when things get unpleasant, because she doesn't immediately reciprocate his emotions. So he literally flings her aside and says, get out. And when she says no, he says, no, now you have to ask to be allowed to stay. Then when she does, saying please, plaintively, he grabs her hand and crushes it in his. We don't actually, he doesn't literally crush her bones. He just squeezes so it's painful. You or I could do that and then forces her down on her knees, and forces her to obey him. And when she hesitates, he flings her aside and casts her out, and turns away dramatically, whereas the Shisendez says, Oh, God, no, I promise, I'll do anything you say, Master. This is when we've jumped over that line of safe, sane, consensual, and now we're into the point of, what the crap? It would be a lot easier to 
romanticize Khan. And, well, there's also the other thing. The, the, the mutual respect. I, I've kind of skipped over several scenes, and I'll talk about them in a second. But Khan has respect for Kirk, and Kirk and crew have respect for him, which would be a lot easier to accept if not for this freaking scene. Question. Do you think he actually cared for her at all? Because I could see a very easy argument that he was simply utilizing her as a tool in order to help take over the ship, since that was his goal, pretty much from the word go. From the moment he asks his first question, which is, what is our heading? It's the very first thing he asked, you notice. Until, you know, when he actually attempts it, his goal is to take the ship and then to go a-conquering, with a starship at his command. And given this era, he could do that. If this was TNG era, nah, that would never fly. Too many people, too many nations, too, too much establishment. But here on the frontier, he could found a new nation, a new interstellar nation, that could become a player on the board. Now, he doesn't know that with historical context, but we do, so it's entirely feasible he could have accomplished what he was after. Now, the reason I bring all this up is I think with total certainty... Well, actually, let me, let me take that back. I could still hear an argument that he was more upset that he lost something that was his in Star Trek II than that he actually ever loved her. However, the common theory I've usually held, pure headcanon, is that somewhere between this episode and Star Trek II, he grew to love her, that an actual legitimate love grew there, and he started to care for her, and that he didn't hear. He respected her because she decided to go with him to the planet. In, in short, if you're paying attention, which, by the way, that's the last scene in the, excuse me, the second last scene in the episode, by my headcanon theory, he didn't even respect her until she decided to go with him to the planet, way after all the other crap. In short, that she was a tool, and then he respected her, and then he grows to love her. Make sense? Messed up. <laughs> but let's rewind a bit. Khan naturally assumes royalty. Wonderful praise to Montalban. Montal... Ricardo. Because he does some excellent stuff where he portrays himself as if he is used to being in charge. As if he is used to being the elite who is served on and waited on. And it's it's just body language stuff he does. Where he's just kind of casual. I, I don't even know how to describe it. But if you watch the episode or if you have a good memory of it, you probably know what I'm talking about. He also gives orders very casually. And in many cases has to kind of catch himself. Like, oh, hang on, hang on. And then he adds the word please or makes it into a request. But it's clear that what he is saying is, go do this for me. That there's that commanding presence he pushes out. And as a quick aside, Montalban, uh, his voice is wonderful for this kind of a thing. Absolutely love it. Anyways, <clears throat> so, he's doing this royalty thing. He insists on finding out about my people. And, and a specific example of what I was talking about earlier, he flat out states, you will revive them. He doesn't state it as a question. He states it as a command, and Kirk says, yeah, when we get to the Starbase, and Khan's like, ah, yes, yes, of course, of course. Right. Then he asks for some technical manuals, because he used to be an engineer. Kirk decides to do the stupidest possible thing he can do and give him those technical manuals. Sure. This is a good time to talk about something else that I like about this episode. Challenging the crew. I know, I feel like we just talked about this, but... One of the things I really love in Star Trek is when they, the writers come up with a creative and inventive way to provide a challenge or a dilemma for the crew that isn't simply a threat of the week that is better than them. You're probably thinking, well, isn't, isn't Khan better than them? No. 
No, Khan is arguably smarter, definitely stronger, and woefully out of date in every other way. Kirk has an entire ship, 400 people who will willingly die for him. Khan is about 60. My point is, the scales have been tilted in such a way that it's actually a surprisingly even fight between the two if you just zoom the picture out and look at it. And if you go through the episode, you'll notice that that does help to frustrate Khan's efforts. He probably felt he would sweep this ship. You know, in other words, just take it effortlessly and quickly. Just done. Hence the term sweeping. Um, nope. <laughs> and it's frustrating to him because he can't believe how difficult this is being. Why is this such an issue? I'll get more to that in a minute. So I like this, this idea and this method of trying to challenge the, the party. This is when we find out about the, the, the hidden records and that a group of supermen took, out about, took over about 40 nations in the 90s. <laughs> Insert your own joke here, they're all good. But we find out that there was a tremendous amount of infighting and there were a lot of warlords. Which makes sense. The basic idea is that these supermen were bred and then immediately went down and went to conquering. Okay, I'd buy that. The idea is superior ability breeds superior ambition. That I don't buy. That is simplistic. Uh, that's like saying owning a gun at all for any reason whatsoever automatically makes you a hardened criminal. You know, that you, you, no, there's a lot of other possible variances and nuances to something as convoluted and complex as a human being. That's the, that's where I kind of lose it. Now, I get the point of the episode, and obviously the core group of supermen did, in fact, do this, but as later Trek has shown, there are plenty of augments who aren't, aren't desirous of going out a conquering, right? And hell, what's really interesting to me is Khan is portrayed, you know, jokingly or otherwise, as one of the more fair of the tyrants. That makes me wonder how bad the other ones were. Anywho. So, Khan... This this is where I, I mention how terrible the, the thing is with, with, with MacGyver's. Oh my god. So they lay out a spread to treat Khan to a meal. Now, funny thing, I, I gotta point this out. It's those stupid food cubes again, but by now we've already heard about the reprocessed, uh, the protein, whatever, right? That's already a, a thing they've mentioned. But there's celery in the middle of the table. Did you notice that? Actual, honest-to-God celery. Celery doesn't last that long. So they probably just picked that up relatively recently. That is a treat. We're, admittedly, this is mostly headcanon, but at the same time, I'm not even sure it is, because I'm slowly building the idea that, you know, non-ration food is a rare and valuable delicacy on a ship like this. The kind of thing that they can get at Starbase, or when they still have supplies, you know, when supplies last, and that's it. So breaking out that celery for Khan, that's pretty impressive. And I'm not actually joking about that. So, this is when Kirk asks about MacGyver's, and Bones has to tell him there's no regulations against romance, which is funny, because not only are there, in fact, regulations against romance, but in the future, there will be regulations against romance, even for, you know, regular crewmen. Looking at you, Harry Kim. God, that's such a dumb episode. Moving on. <laughs> Dinner scene. One man would have ruled eventually. This is a brilliant scene. It's actually probably the best scene in the whole episode. I could just gush about it. It constantly bounces back. It, it's like a tennis match. Spock calmly, carefully, quietly 
lays out facts in a way that sounds accusatory. Then Khan responds and tries to defend. The whole time Kirk is just staring at him. Khan himself comments on the strategy involved. You, you're, you're first in command attacks, and you sit and looking for weakness. And he's absolutely right. That's exactly what's happening. It is only when Khan insists that he prefers a more honest conflict that Kirk needles him openly and honestly. And Khan, who actually is emotionally stung by the needle, responds without catching himself, We offered the world order! And he catches himself right after saying it. We and he's impressed. I forget what he says. He's excellent or something like that. But he's actually impressed, and he actually now has respect for Kirk for having outmaneuvered him on this matter. That respect thing is a big part of this episode, too, like I mentioned earlier. You know, if we, if we eject the, you know, <laughs> how not to treat your subordinates at work part of the episode, uh, you can see why there's so much respect for Kirk, or excuse me, for Khan, and why Khan has so much respect for the crew in return, especially Kirk. This is even further ha uh, mentioned when Kirk actually goes directly to interact with him. It's like, hey. And, you know, he, he tries to talk around him and through him and figures things out. And successfully, once again, shuffles the conversation towards getting the answer he wanted. And Khan is once again impressed by this. Kirk even mentions, I got everything I needed from this one conversation. And Khan's just like, okay. There's some really good facial acting in this episode, by the way. So, this then leads to, I, I mentioned the admiration and romanticization, I've already talked about that. This then leads to the, the engineering being used to take over the ship. Again, uh, it's a thing, it's a thing in Star Trek, you can just take over a ship from engineering. I'm not sure why they even have the bridge. <laughs> I'm kidding, actually having two control centers for their ship makes a lot of sense. The problem is how one control center can apparently lock out the other, but not vice versa. I'm not sure how feasible that is in programming terms, because that's probably what that would be. I don't know. I'm not that much of an expert. But anywho, Khan takes over the ship. Everyone passes out on the bridge. No. Ugh. This is funny. This is when we really have to talk about Khan, because he's very, very Darwin. I've actually already talked about the scene in brief. He really actually believes in his superiority, which you can understand because he is technically superior in a way that I would not consider superior, but his stats are higher, to put it simplistically. But as anyone will tell you, having higher stats is not a guarantee of anything other than the fact that it's easier to get complacent. So Khan sort of just assumes that he'll be able to convince these people. So... You know, join me. He, 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 he just offers for them to join him. You know, I have need of the ship. Join me. He figures that his simple charisma and willpower will convince him to join him, which is probably how it worked back on Earth. Naturally, this doesn't work. Now, I could make a comment about superior humans in the future, but honestly, I don't think that has anything to do with anything. This is a hardened Starfleet crew who has a great deal of loyalty to their captain, one of the most legendary captains of this particular era. And this ship has been through a lot of crap. They're loyal because they're cruel. You know, family is chosen and all that, right? So the fact that none of them budge doesn't really bother me all that much, other than MacGyver's. And even she can't really deal with this. I'll comment on that in just a second. So he's, so he's all calm about it at first. Once again, wonderful praise to the actor. Who I'm not going to... Montalban. 
Montalban's acting is excellent in the scene because he starts off completely in control. But then he's like, okay, um, you know, if one of you, if one of you decides to join me, it'll be, it'll be fine. Um, you, you just, or, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm skipping ahead. All of you need to join me. Then he turns to Spock. Spock, if you join me, join me, Mr. Spock. I will spare his life. Uh, okay. Anyone. Anyone join me. Anyone joins me at all. I will spare his life. And he just sounds like a little bit more flustered each time until finally he actually rants. It's so useless. Like, he actually can't understand why this isn't working. All of you will go in there. All of you. I don't... Why is this not working? And it's so amusing. Because the implication there is that Khan, for all his charisma and power, has absolutely no understanding of what it takes to be a leader. Because anyone can have a superior tactical mind, like Spock. But it takes a leader to actually unify a people, which Khan clearly cannot do, given the tactics and, and techniques he's relying on. <laughs> this is interesting in its own right. I wonder if he became a leader by Star Trek II by virtue of keeping the, the group together through the hardships that they faced on This is Seti Alpha 5. Or 6, whichever one it is. No, it's 5. I'm right, I'm right. <clears throat> so Khan fails. And just gets frustrated. There's this wonderful bit where MacGyver says, "Can I? do I have to watch this? And he says, no, but I'd hoped you would have been stronger. This is, I'm just mentioning that to give another piece of evidence for the fact that I don't think he respected her yet. Other than the obvious crap earlier. So Spock, there's a lot of little tiny moments which are awesome. There's this bit where Spock is coming in and Kirk's like, I'm waiting behind and as Spock passes, he just imperceptibly glances to the side and then goes right back to looking forward, as if he didn't notice Kirk there. And then, when Kirk attacks, he is immediately ready for the pinch, because he noticed Kirk there. It's really subtle. There's a lot of little touches like that, and I wanted to point out at least a couple like that. Speaking of subtle touches, they, they were having a hard time showing off Khan's super strength, so they came up with this brilliant idea. This is actually great. They came up with a phaser model that had already been crushed inwards, in, in like a vice. And what happens is they've got the camera facing this way, and he's holding it as if he's holding holding, but his palms are completely covering what would be the phaser, but there's just empty space there. And then he slowly creaks it in as if he's crushing it, and they add crushing you know, plastic sounds in the audio thing, so it sounds like he's crushing the phaser in his bare hands. He's not, of course, but it's actually a really impressive effect, especially for the time. Which is good, because then we get to the wrestling fight. I'm not going to ding the episode too hard for this, but this is probably the most obvious body doubling I've seen in the whole episode. The stunt doubles for Kirk and Khan are bad. The guy who's actually fighting the, the, the Khan stunt double doesn't look anything like Kirk. It's actually kind of funny to watch. But one thing, I'm willing to let that pass. You know, remember, TV, grainy, you know. So, okay, sure. What I'm less, less tolerant of is the actual choreography of the fight itself. As I've said before, I've actually been watching the fights because you can have good choreography in the 60s. I've seen it. I was expecting to hate this fight. I didn't. It's not great. It's certainly not as engaging as the one back in um, uh, Return to Tomorrow or whatever it's called. But it wasn't Actually, tomorrow was yesterday. That was it. It wasn't that bad. It just wasn't that great. It was basically a wrestling match. They literally do wrestling moves if you pay attention to what they're doing and how they're fighting. 
it's silly because the whole point is Kirk is fighting someone who is quintuple his strength and probably more agile and probably more experienced in it anyways. And Kirk just beats him with a plastic rod and some random moves that shouldn't work at all. So the whole thing is pretty dumb, I'm just going to be honest. It's easily the second weakest part of the episode after the I can't believe it's not abuse section of the episode. So, Kirk gives a log entry. It would be a shame to send them to rehabilitation. Why? Well, we know the answer is because he respects Khan, because of that mutual admiration, and because of that romanticization thing I mentioned earlier. Which, again, I would be a lot more in favor of if not for... I hate to keep pointing out, it would be a lot more in favor of not for the MacGyver stuff. I really would. The idea of a villain who isn't overtly evil, as in not to the point of being like, <laughs> a villain who can earn the respect of the main cast and thus be given a more lenient sentence, like being sentenced to a harsh wilderness in order to conquer a new planet. Okay, yeah, I'm actually down for that, and I'm kind of with the idea. Sending MacGyver, well, giving MacGyver's the choice to go there too. Okay. And then, of course, we have the quote by Milton, which I've never agreed with. Why would you want to rule hell if you could serve in heaven? That's so stupid. But here's the thing. The really funny part about this episode is Spock has this line right at the end. It would be interesting to return in a hundred years and see what comes of this seed you have spotted. Roll credits. How about about 20 years, Spock? Does that work for you? I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts on this one, guys. I, I really like this episode. This is easily going in my VHS list. I'll see you next time.